All right. It's so good to be together. Um, and in many ways, uh, our speaker really needs no introduction. If you've been in our church for uh, a number of time, you have heard him uh, preach before, hopefully. And so you're in for a treat. But hopefully, uh, you've also heard about the incredible organization that he founded, Do For One, um, which has been literally transforming relationships throughout our city, where they pair people with physical or cognitive disabilities with people who have none in a spirit of mutual friendship. And the, the transformation that happens on both ends is absolutely stunning. Um, Andrew Oliver is one of the godliest men I know. When I'm around him, I want to love Jesus more. Um, I, 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 he truly is an example to, to anyone who knows him, uh, and he's quite the stellar preacher. And so it's absolutely a gift uh, to be able to have him in our community, to just watch him lead and serve. And so if you don't know about Do For One or not engaged with them, please connect with them. Uh, they do incredible work. But in this moment, could you help welcome Andrew Oliver as he continues our series, Recovering Discipleship, this morning. Let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you, Pastor Chris, for your kind words that I don't know if I can live up to. Um, <laughs> well, let's just get started. Um, I had a conversation recently with a good friend of mine. Um, similar to me, he has been a follower of Jesus for most of his life, as long as he can remember. And also similar to me, he's been in uh, uh, church ministry to a variety of great degrees, um, a lot of different places all across the country. And he's one of those friends, I don't know if you have a friend like this, where you sit down, you have small talk, but then you just get right into it. You know what I mean? You don't have to delay, you just get right into the, the meaty stuff, the meaty stuff. And this conversation was something I was, I was unprepared for because it got, got pretty deep pretty quickly. After some small talk, he said to me, he said, I don't know if I believe in this stuff anymore. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I just don't, I just don't know what I believe anymore. This Christianity stuff, I don't know what to make of it anymore. And then he went on to share about his observations about all the hypocrisy in the church that we can observe today. All of the scandals of the high-profile, charismatic leaders, representative of the American church. All of the various churches that have church growth models, church growth models based more on business than the gospel. He says, I just don't know if I can believe this stuff anymore. And he said, to be honest with you, I interact with people who are not Christians who live lives of more integrity and honesty and fruitfulness. So I don't know what to make of this Christianity stuff anymore. And then he said, I'm looking for the purest form of truth. And that phrase really grabbed me, you know, the purest form of truth. So then our conversation took a turn, and I think it was a, a good turn for both of us. We started to explore, where is it that we could find the purest form of truth? We pondered if whether, maybe it's the people who are called to a monastic life, you know, people who go to a, mon to a, a monastery and live as a monk, you know, dedicating a life of prayer and, and service to the poor. Maybe that's where we can find the purest form of truth. 
And then we explored, oh, maybe it's more like in the informal communities where people are, are advocating for all the injustices in the world and, 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 and forming a reputation kind of similar to the early church, right? Maybe that's where we can find the purest form of truth. Or maybe it's, you know, some of these ex-evangelicals that we hear about who, who go uh, kind of to, to more of these um, uh, traditional type of, type of denominations, you know, uh, the, the more traditional or liturgical forms of worship in hopes of finding firmer grounding in the historical version of Christianity. Maybe that's where we can find the purest form of truth. But what was interesting is that every example that we explored, and then we kind of explored it down to its root, and we kind of went around and around, we found flaws with every example, even though those are good examples to explore and to learn from. And I finally said something to my friend, and I was fully aware that what I was about to say to him was going to rub him in the wrong way because, I, you know, I was sympathetic to where he was at in his faith. And I said, forgive me, man, but I'm going to say something so obvious. It's going to be so cliche for you and I who grew up as evangelical Christians. But nonetheless, I believe it to be true. I said, you know the only place where we can find the purest form of truth is? What do you think I said? Where can we find the purest form of truth? In the person in the life of Jesus, found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the only pure example of what we call Christianity. We can't find it anywhere else. Show me the godliest person you know who's here alive today pales in comparison to the life and the holiness and the righteousness of Christ. So we're wasting our time if we're looking for the purest form of truth in anything outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels and consider who he is, what he teaches, what he displays before us, and then consider for yourself if he's someone that you want to listen to and follow or not. What's sad is that today many people are walking away from the Christian faith. And a lot of times I'm afraid that people are walking away from the Christian faith because they're looking at impure examples and saying, I don't want to believe in that stuff. If that's, what it was, that's, if that's the byproduct of Christianity, I don't want that. It's estimated that around 75% of 18 to 34-year-olds express a distrust in pastors and church leaders today. Around 75% young, young American adults. The American church, in many ways, is facing an identity crisis. There's conversations all over the country about the decline in attendance in churches. And to be honest, the criticisms that people say, the, 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 the criticisms that people have about the American church, they're warranted. The abuse of power and greed, it should be confronted. Jesus confronted the same kinds of things when he walked on earth. He walked into the temple and he flipped over the tables and he said, you've turned my house into a marketplace when it was meant to be a house of prayer. That's what Jesus said. So those criticisms are warranted. The problem, however, for those, of you, for those, for, for those who are you know, peers among us, and maybe you've heard this before, there are many people who say they're deconstructing their faith. And the criticisms are warranted. But the problem is that we have many people who are deconstructing without reconstructing. We seem to be much better at knowing what we're against than what we're for. It's like, okay, we can point the finger all day long. But at the end of the day, we must decide what we want to stand for. 
to search for the purest form of truth and to stand for that truth, to have the courage to stand for that truth. The other issue is that our political opinions and our cultural values have more authority over our lives than the authority of Scripture. And what's so confusing about that is we've allowed our opinions to become bled into our faith. So our opinions become doctrine. And younger people are especially confused by this. I heard a young woman a couple years ago who wrote a sincere letter to her conservative family, her Republican family. And it was a long letter. It was a dramatic letter. And in many ways, it sounded like a cry for help. But it had a tone of a resignation. She, just wants, she was resigning. The letter reached a climax in the middle of the letter when she said, Mom and Dad, I'm no longer a Christian, and I voted for Joe Biden. That's what she said. We, we chuckle because the Lord Jesus Christ, Joe Biden... But do you see that our toxic culture is messing with our young people? What surrounds us is a message that in order to be Christian, you must have a certain opinion. You must have certain opinions like us, like our family, blue-collar opinions. You must have opinions like our family, white-collar opinions. You must be urban. You must be rural, right? And we call it Christianity. It's become our doctrine. And young people are leaving the faith saying, I want nothing to do with that. We've reduced the gospel to such shallow things. When you compare them to the eternal path that lays before us, found in the gospels, the greatest of ideas pales in comparison. But yet somehow, in our day and age, the gospel message sounds kind of boring compared to the hot topics of our time. There's a lot of entertaining people out there. There are a lot of intelligent people out there in media. Smart talkers. Sometimes they're funny. Sometimes they're very intelligent, well-read, whatever. And they make all of these hot topics sound really, really interesting and compelling. So we get get sucked into a 90-minute podcast, and we dig in deep and all of these different things. You know what I mean? But the apostles were not bored with the gospel message. For the first Christians, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus was the message of their lifetime, and it should be ours as well. So let me read the full passage of this series, and then we'll repeat just a part of the the passage uh, that we'll focus on today. Acts 2, starting at 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now here's what we're going to focus on today. Just Acts 2, part part of verse 42. 
they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's what we're going to focus on. Let's pray. Lord, we just quiet our minds, quiet our hearts now. We recognize that we live in a day and age where there are so many distractions. Even as we're sitting here, Lord, our minds are filled with distractions. So would you help us to concentrate on what it is that you have for us right now, today? Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? What, what, are we, what, are we, what were they teaching? What were they devoted to? Um, Chris uh, uh, mentioned some of this last week, so this will, some of this will overlap with what he said. Uh, the apostles' teaching was essentially what we have today in the form of four gospels, four gospels that you find in the New Testament. Um, in the temple at the time, they also would have had access to the book of Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. Um, What's significant about the apostles that we read about in Acts 2 is that they were eyewitnesses. That's significant, right? If a detective shows up to the scene of a crime, who he's not going to talk to or take all that seriously are the people who heard the sirens down the street and then they came running down and they didn't see anything. They're just wanting, wanting to know what all the buzz is about, right? Detective, the, the detective is not interested in talking to those people. Who he's interested in talking to is the, the person who was across the street peeping out the window and saw the crime, right? Or the person who was in the house at the time of the crime. In order to, to get to the bottom of what happened, the detective wants to see and talk to the eyewitnesses. So when we read in the book of Acts, we have the opportunity to read about the first Christians who were eyewitnesses of the life of Jesus. And I think it can do us some good if we imagine what it must have been like for them to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching in that moment, right? These are people that saw Jesus gathering crowds, performing miracles, hanging on the cross, dying, resurrecting, appearing before them in a heavenly body and, and, and ministering to him still, ascending into heaven, you know? I want to say, like... They must have been just sitting around the table like, did, you, did, did we just see that? Like, was that real? But yes, indeed, it was real. And so they, they saw the importance of it. So they started writing it all down, right? And then they just decided, like, we're devoting ourselves to this because this is once in a lifetime. This is going to change the world. What we do know to be the case as far as what it must have been like is that... Uh, um, the stories of Jesus and his teachings were passed down through oral, oral reading of Scripture and committing Scripture to memory. They would gather over meals at homes in the synagogues um, to hear the word of God being read aloud to them. So fast-forwarding through history, over time, early Christians, they rushed to make copies of what, um, of what they had because many at the time saw this new teaching as a threat. They saw the, that Jesus' words had the power to change people and communities. So they were not just coming after the people who were eyewitnesses, but they were smart about it, and they came after the apostles' teaching because they knew that that could outlast the lives of these apostles, right? So they martyred them. They also tried to grab the scriptures because they realized, wow, this word is powerful, and it's transforming not only them, but it's transforming people around them, you know, and it's starting to grow and spread. It wasn't until fairly recently that scriptures were made widely available to most parts of the world. Um, just to give you an idea, uh, there's this 
this wonderful story. There's a lot of details to it that I'm going to gloss over, but um, this, uh, this young Welsh girl in the 1700s, her name is Mary Jones, who saved up uh, in pennies for eight years to buy her Bible. She told her mom, Mom, all the greatest stories are told from the Bible. I want to get me a copy. So while all, her, all of her eight-year-old friends are off playing somewhere, she's working, saving in pennies so that one day she can own her own Bible. She goes to the store nearby. There's no Bibles available. She has to walk 22 miles to the next store that had a Bible available. She finally gets it, walks 22 miles back. The story inspired the British and Foreign Bible Society where their mission is to make the Bible available all across the world. There are still places in the world where the Bible is not accessible. Many countries, for example, the Bible is illegal, and it would cost your life to be caught with one. But for us, and in most parts of the Western world, the Bible and multiple translations of the Bible is available. So if it's true that the purest form of our faith is available, and it's written, and we have copies of it, and multiple copies of it, and multiple translations of it, if it's true that that word transforms our lives and transforms communities, then why is it that we don't see lives in communities transformed? It doesn't add up, right? The Bible is accessible everywhere around here now. And yet, where are the transformed, the transformed communities? I'll state another obvious thing. It must be because we're not reading our Bibles. Could it be true that we would see a major change in our lives and in our communities if we just simply read our Bibles? I say yes. Just as it impacted the first Christians, the same word also has the power to impact us. But why does it sound like it should be so easy to read God's word? That's the first question that I want to address. Second is why is it actually so very hard to read God's word? And lastly, if it does have the power to transform our lives and our communities, then what must we do about it? So why does it sound like it should be easy to read God's word? Um, I didn't take the time to count. I got a little lazy, I guess. But Allie and I, I think, own, I don't know, 15, 20 Bibles at home, you know, something like that. Multiple translations, got the literary version, you got the NIV study Bible, you know, all of that. Um, I don't know how many you guys own, but... You know, these, these Bibles, they just kind of, they kind of, they, they, they tend to sit around our apartments, right? They might be sitting on our kitchen table. They might be sitting on the couch or, or wherever. And, and, you know, most of us aren't reading them, right? So we, we kind of treat them like, um, like they're scented candles. Like, <laughs> like maybe, if, maybe if my Bible's just out on the bookshelf where everyone can see it, the, the truth will just sort of like fill the room. And when I walk in, I'll just breathe it in, right? But of course that's not true, right? We must open and read and study and ponder and imagine, right? Because most of us have access to Scripture at home, which is such a great gift. It sounds like it should be easy. But for most Americans, despite access to the Bible, we don't read them. Just to give you a rough idea, the American Bible Society estimates that just around 10% of Americans read their Bible regularly. 
It's also said that during the pandemic, there were 24 million Christian, American Christians who used to read their Bible regularly who stopped reading it when the pandemic hit. Christian youth, it's said that Christian youth consume 3,000 hours of digital information per year, and just 150 of those hours are Christian content. What comes in our minds impacts us how we see the world, it impacts us how we act and respond to the world and to people around us. So if we're consuming 3,000 hours of information a year, it's over 100 days worth of information, and we're barely touching the scriptures, that will no doubt corrode our minds and corrode our faith. It will do us a great deal of good to imagine what it must have been like to be the apostle sitting around that table saying, did you just see that? I'm going to lay down my life to make sure that this message passes on so that by the time it's 2022, there can be people in Astoria who can read about it. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So the most pointed question for you and for me today is do you read your Bible? Do you read your Bible? How much do you read your Bible? I talked to Pastor Chris and Denise earlier this week and um, you know I I did want to just say that we don't want to take it for granted that there might be somebody at our church who doesn't have a printed Bible and if you need one come and talk to us. If you need special accommodations like a large print Bible or perhaps a Bible in a language that you're more familiar with, come and talk to us and we would be glad to work something out for you. That's our commitment as a church at Hope Astoria, to make sure that every one of us has a Bible in our hands and at home. Our culture tends to downplay any form of authority. And so we tend to sort of take on this false humility and say, well, I'm no theologian, but... Or we say, we don't need doctrine, we just need to love and we just need to serve people. But the first Christians understood that we can't fully understand Jesus and we can't fully understand what our community should look like without first devoting ourselves to what Jesus taught. We see the Spirit fall on them. And we see the Spirit enable them to understand the authority of what they saw. And as they read it and wrote it down, they saw the authority of the truth of these words. If you're somebody who is like, wants to read the scriptures and you're saying to yourself, well, I'm no theologian or I'm no scholar. Who am I to open up these sacred words and to try to understand them? Keep in mind that the first Christians were largely uneducated people. And if you read the book of Acts from Acts 1 to 2, you'll see that the spirit of the living God falled on them and filled them and gave them the grace to understand. So the same kind of grace is available to you and to me. So it does not matter how intelligent you think you are. Wisdom that comes from God is a grace, which means that it's available to all of us. So if we're all in some sense called to be theologians, did you know that? You're called to be a theologian, which simply means to understand who God is, the nature of God. 
We're all a people who must study and come to know God and his nature, especially as he is revealed through Jesus. If we have access to our Bibles and the convenience of our homes, and if we don't need to be seminary students to understand what the words say, we have the Spirit's help, then why is it actually so hard to read the Bible? That's the second question. Why is it actually so hard to read God's word? Just before we read this passage um, in Acts 2, 42, um, and, and, we, and we read that the apostles devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, we read a line at the end of one of Peter's sermons in Acts 2. By the way, it's so fascinating that we can open up and we can actually read Peter's sermon, you know? Isn't that amazing? Like, we have such a gift in the word of God that we can actually see what would the first, what would the first sermons like? Well... We have access. We can actually read that. Read Peter's sermon. At the end, he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Just as we are influenced by our culture and surroundings and false teachings, the apostles were also surrounded by a culture filled with lies. It didn't even take long for the early Christians to begin mixing in various beliefs and false teachings into Christianity, just like we do. And what's helpful is when you read some of the letters that Paul wrote to the church, we see how false teachings have corrupted Christians' minds, and he writes letters of warnings to these various churches and says, look out, watch out for these false teachings. Here's just a couple of examples. These, Ephesians 4, 14 says, Beware of winds of teaching being no longer like little children tossed by waves and carried about by every wind of teaching. 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. So in these verses, and there are many more like it, we see a stark warning that there are winds of teaching, there are myths, there are pretentious arguments that will wage war on our minds to prevent us from knowing sound doctrine, meaning the knowledge of God, to know who God really is. They had winds of teaching and myths and pretentious arguments in their time. We have ours. So this is actually why it's so hard for us to open up God's word and read it. Because when we read the truth found in the Gospels, it rubs up against every trend in pop culture. It runs against every conspiracy theory that we find in these deep dive podcasts and YouTube videos. It tears down all the pretentious arguments that we hear from the culturally elite who just think they're so smart and think they have all the right ideas. The gospel demolishes all of those strongholds. One major shift that's led to uh, much of modernistic thinking and we're all influenced, we're all shaped by it today, is the intellectual and philosophical movement. It dominated Europe in the 17th and 18th century, and it moved on over to the U.S. as well. It's a movement called the Enlightenment. To be painfully brief, the Enlightenment era led to um, what we now call modernism. Um, And the mindset, again, just a very brief summary, the mindset that the Enlightenment led us to is that God or the gods, they might exist out there somewhere, but they don't interact with our day-to-day life. So what we see and what we touch and what we feel and everything that's material is real and important, but anything that's unseen or, or just kind of out there somewhere, it's, it's just a figment of our imagination. That's largely what the mindset is. 
So you might observe, for example, how today we tend to exalt modern science and technology in our schools and workplaces. Notice how those are the careers where all the money is. But we tend to view other fields of study as silly, unimportant, or extra, like art, poetry, music, metaphysics, and even theology. ever occur to you that those things are just as important as science, technology? But unfortunately, for most of our modern minds, we don't. We tend to elevate the science and the technology, everything that's material, but everything that's immaterial, not as important. It's led to many elitists who claim that people who believe in the unseen God, a God who loves us and interacts with us and speaks with us, these elitists will say, oh, that's silly. It's like believing in the tooth fairy or Santa Claus, they say. Some say it's outright dangerous and we'd be better off if we could get rid of all those religions because the things that we've discovered, those of us who are enlightened have a better idea. That's what they say. But what's ironic is that it's just a new kind of dogma. It's the very attitude that they claim to be against. Self-righteousness, piety, We saw a short-lived movement emerge in the 2010s, for example, when atheists were trying to convert the Western world to atheism, you know? They hated evangelism for Christianity, and so they became evangelists that there is no God, you know? You see the irony of that? The founding principles of America were shaped by the Enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson is known to have created a version of the Gospels taking out all the supernatural and miraculous stories. So if our minds are shaped largely by what we call modernism. Then reading the scriptures about Jesus uh, uh, teaching us how to pray is fine. But Jesus announcing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is not okay. We reject that. God being encouraging to us and affirming us in our humanity is fine. We'll put that on our refrigerator, right? But God challenging our assumptions about the nature of being human and the nature of human relationships is not fine. He cannot intervene and tell me what to do. What I can feel and touch and experience, we say, matters more than what is universally true about God in the world. We're entitled. We think that we need to feel good all the time. And if knowledge has no practical use to make my life better, if it doesn't affirm what I feel to be true myself and my experiences, then I want nothing to do with it. That's the kind of mindset that you and I have to battle each and every day. It's in us. It's modernism. Now do you see that although we have access to our Bibles, why it's actually one of the hardest things for us to do. It goes against all sorts of things that our modern minds are not prepared to deal with. If you're still with me, (laughs) I know I've given you a lot to think about. My hope is that I've reinvigorated you to pick up your Bible and read it. Seems like it should be easy, but it's actually one of the hardest things to do. But if it has the power to transform our lives and our families and our communities and our churches, then we must ask the last question, which is what must we do about it? So, what must we do about it? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 through 15 says this. 
We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to uh, this. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So Paul says to that church, Paul says to Hope Astoria, to stand firm and hold fast. Imagine if you and I had family from many, many, many generations ago who broke bread with the Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine that these people witnessed his life before them. And then imagine that we had access to the letters of this family, and they wrote these letters, I want to pass this down to many generations to come after me, because I just witnessed something that I really want to make sure that my great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson or granddaughter knows about. And then you come across this urgent letter from your great-great-great-great-grandfather, and it reads, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings I've passed down to you. We would pay attention, right? Oh, what is it that he wanted us to know and understand? Well, the truth is, is that when you and I decide to follow Jesus, spiritually speaking, we're grafted into a new family. And there is a sense in which we have a grandfather in our faith, the Apostle Paul, who says, stand firm and hold fast. Whether you're new to faith or old to faith, or even if you're someone who isn't sure what to believe, but you're compelled to stick with me so far. Um, Let me offer some practical advice. The worship team can come forward. So what must we do about it? I want to share three broad general stages for reading God's word. These stages are not necessarily in chronological order, like step one, step two, step three, you're done, nothing like that more circular. It's a way that we grow spiritually. But in order for clarity, you got to start somewhere. So I'll call this one stage one, okay? Got a slide for this. Stage one, plain and simple. Pick up God's word and read it. In other words, let's get to know Jesus by reading God's word. Two practical ideas for how you could go about this in this season. One, is you could pick up and, and, and go to Acts 2, starting at verse 42, the verses that we'll be uh, 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 teaching on over the next, this next series. Consider what that might mean. And the good part about following whatever the sermons are preaching on is that you can, you can kind of reference the sermon and you can join your small group and have discussions about it. You can have conversations with your friends at church about these passages. You know, that can be helpful. Another way to approach it is that... Um, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, and what the apostles' teaching is, is the four gospels. So you could pick a gospel, and we're talking as an example to to use the book of John. Open up the book of John tomorrow morning and read one chapter. Read John chapter 1. And then on Tuesday, read John chapter 2, and so on. And if you commit to that, you would have yourself a 21-day Bible reading plan. I know for sure, for me, it helps to have some kind of plan because I can be very distracted and I open my Bible and I don't know where to go and ah, never mind, right? 
But if I know it's Tuesday, John chapter 2, here we go. Then I'm committed, right? 21-day Bible reading plan. That's stage one. Just pick up your Bible and start reading it. Stage two, wrestle with God's word and notate it. In other words, wrestle with Jesus. It's a living word, and Jesus is speaking to us through his word, and so we wrestle with him. We say, oh, I don't know if I agree with that. We say, I don't know if I understand that. We say, yeah, I think I I can see the truth in that, but I'm not ready for that, right? We wrestle with Jesus in these these kinds of ways. But notate it. Have a, a journal next to your Bible or a piece of paper, maybe fold it in your Bible, something like that, and just write down the things that you're saying. I don't agree with that. Verse, verse three, yeah, great. Verse four, I just, I don't know if I understand what that means, right? And then you have it documented. And as you go along, you can move past that verse, right? Don't let that discourage you to keep reading. Keep reading that full chapter. And then later on, and maybe in a new season of life, you might come back to those notes and you'll start to see, wow, actually I see verse four come to life. Like now I'm ready for it. Now I'm ready to, now I'm ready to receive that. The point is that you don't get distracted by things you don't understand or don't agree with and then not read at all. Just keep searching the scriptures and consider how sacred these texts really are and how we can find eternal life through them. Keep digging. Keep wrestling with Jesus. Stage three, submit to God's word and stand firm in it. In other words, let Jesus come to know you through scripture and be changed by it. So if you're brave and if you're faithful, You can come to a different sort of place in Scripture, and I'm afraid that not very many of us get to this place in Scripture. This is where we come to Scripture and we submit our opinions and our objections to the authority of God's Word, not the other way around. We don't submit Scripture to the authority of our opinions, which we can get into the habit of doing. This can be a painful process. Because the scriptures will call us to lay to death many secular ideas that have corrupted our minds. The ideas shared by politically elites or pop culture or the deep dive podcast, whatever. We might have to deal with the the pain of of our lack of trust in Christian leadership or something like that, those of us who have been wounded. The word of God cuts through all sorts of things. It has divine power to demolish these strongholds if we're willing to submit to its power. We might have to struggle with the offensiveness of the gospel of grace. God's saying through the scriptures, it's not about, my child, it's not about what you can do for me, it's what I can do for you. So humble yourself. That can be challenging for some of us, right? I'm not suggesting that this will be easy. It's quite literally the hardest thing to do. That's why the apostles didn't do it alone. They did it in community. Neither should we. But if you want to know eternal life, we must come to know Jesus. And the only way that we can come to know Jesus is by reading the Gospels chewing on the word, trying to understand the word, wrestling with the word, talking to our friends about the word. As I close, I want to read one last passage, another letter from Paul, Romans 12. This is oftentimes referred to, and if we're talking to worship leaders about what is the true definition of worship, might talk about this verse. 
Romans 12, the beginning, it says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, perfect will. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. What are the patterns of this world? Lies. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? We renew our minds by feeding our minds truth of the purest form. The purest form of truth comes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who holds the entire universe in his hands, became flesh. And there were people who were watching and they made an account. That's where we find the purest form of truth. That's how we renew our minds. I had the privilege of knowing this man named Carlos many, many years ago. He was abused as a child. Later in life, he became a prostitute on the streets of Brooklyn. He was addicted to cocaine and many other substance abuse uh, issues. He was transformed by the renewing of his mind through the love and embrace of Jesus Christ. And if he had one message for you and for me, and he would say it all the time, it's like, how, Carlos, how did this happen? This is what he would say. And he had a little bit of a sass to his personality, so I'm going to try to impersonate it. He said, you are a product of your mind. That's what he would say. You are a product of your mind. I'm a product of my mind. What I think about, what I put in my mind, is who I become. So therefore, what is it that we want to meditate on on a daily basis? Do we want to look at what's trending on Twitter? Is that really what we want to feed our minds with? Or do we want to look at the tried and true gospels, the ones that the first Christians laid their life down for so that they could send a letter to their great, 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 great granddaughter and grandchild, you and me, to say, stand fast and hold firm. This is what will lead you to eternal life. Oh, man. All of the information that we feed our minds with pales in comparison to what we talk about when we talk about our Lord Jesus. You're a product of your mind. Can we stand and I'll um, pray for us and close? Dear Lord, it's a great privilege to pray, to stand before your beloved sons and daughters. I believe that you're here and that you're penetrating our hearts today. You're penetrating my heart today, God. Renew our love for your word, Lord. Forgive us for getting caught up for being one of those 24 million people who stopped reading our Bibles during the pandemic. Forgive us, Lord.
give us the grace to discipline ourselves, to honor those who came before us, those who laid down their lives to make sure that we can open up those words and read them and consider them. Give us the grace, Lord, to appreciate the true value of Scripture in today's age. Be with us as a church. We trust you. We give it all to you. In Jesus' name.